Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 17, Between Egyptian and Hittite Domination. The creation of an Egyptian colony in Canaan is a landmark in regional history, but it's equally significant in global history, though it does not receive the recognition it deserves. We're entering the age of empires here, and that didn't truly end until the early 20th century, so it's worth talking a bit about its significance. Today we understand the world in terms of nation-states, you know, countries with fixed borders, population, and sovereignty. But the best way to understand early empires is to forget about that completely. That has no relation to what was going on in this period. Even the maps you might see when you Google different empires are very misleading. The further back you go in history, the more misleading they become. The Egyptians and Babylonians didn't think in terms of territory that was within their borders. Instead, they had goals. Goals like controlling trade routes or resources. And they created ad hoc systems of control designed to accomplish these goals. Over time, these systems became more regulated and streamlined until they started to disintegrate. But the territories within a given empire weren't controlled the way we think of it today. There were no border crossings or officials taking documents. The authority of the empire was unofficial and exerted when possible and deemed necessary. And sometimes, in areas that were theoretically within the control of an empire, they really had no control at all. And nor did they seek control at all in areas that weren't immediately within their interest sphere. Therefore, the Egyptian empire in Canaan was embedded in a series of garrisons, fortifications, governors, and alliances with local leaders. But often Egypt had very little control in areas where these were not present. And that wouldn't necessarily frustrate the pharaoh and his governments. They operated in Canaan to achieve very specific policy goals and really didn't exert more force or resources than needed. The more they needed to accomplish, the more they invested in it. The less, the less they invested in it. Now, Older historical analyses of the Egyptian empire didn't look at it this way. Instead, it was believed that Canaan was divided into provinces, three to be specific. Canaan, governed from Gaza, a Phoenician province, governed from Lebanon, and the province of Upe, which was mainly in Syria. But more recent scholarship sees that as kind of taking the mechanics of the Roman Empire and using it anachronistically. Instead, as we will see, this was more of a loose network of control wielded in accordance with immediate necessity. Some evidence that was taken to show that this was like a hardcore empire with regions was that military commanders were sometimes stationed in certain cities for an extended period of time. But that's clearly not the case. The commanders were assigned, but they weren't governors in a meaningful sense. Even the name of their position was, quote, circuit commanders. So, in the early stages, they certainly weren't governing a, uh, a region or anything like that. Instead, they served as the eyes and ears of the pharaoh. Renowned Egyptologist Redford explained the following, quote, 
The spheres of operation of the officers concerned were constantly shifting on an ad hoc basis, which at this distance of time, one cannot fathom. The officer was sent out of Egypt on assignment. He is allotted a certain number of cities, visits them on rounds with specific ends in view, and can reside in the interim in one of the headquarters. Sooner or later, they return to Egypt to consult with the king. Because of his familiarity with one part of the country, his activity might be restricted to towns in one region only. Still, the reason for this was personal and had nothing to do with any division of Palestine or Syria, end quote. I should note that this map of interests in Canaan coalesces over time. Before the exposition of uh, Thutmose III, these interests were mostly limited to the coast. But by the reign of Amenhotep III, who ruled in about 1382 to 1344 BCE, all of these areas had coalesced as vital Egyptian interests. Indeed, by this period, we will see the pharaoh intervening in city-states adjacent to their central areas of concern for Egypt. For example, as we will discuss when we get to the Amarna letters, this would include receiving the loyalty of the king of Jerusalem, who the Egyptians also seem to have appointed in accordance with their narrow interests. The increased interest in this area was likely the result of security threats emerging from Moab and Edom, which are located in modern Jordan. The most important part of this network was the Mediterranean coast. The Egyptians wanted to maintain their sea-bound link to Lebanon, and particularly their ally in Byblos, so that they would have a stable source of wood. And we've discussed that in a previous episode. Meanwhile, the roads inland were somewhat less important, but the networks were still worth maintaining and cultivating because they allowed trade to safely reach the east, where Egypt sent royal caravans to the Mitanni, among others. And as we'll see... When a security threat materialized from the Hittites, those roads leading inwards became all the more strategically crucial. You might notice that the homeland of the Israelites in the future, around Shechem and Jerusalem, does not really fall into this sphere of influence. Jerusalem itself kind of did, Shechem did not. The Egyptians may have made incursions into that area early on, because in the 16th century BCE, Shechem was destroyed, twice. It's unclear if the Egyptians did so, or if this was internal strife. The written record doesn't mention any campaigns there, so it may well have been the latter. But if the Egyptian military did raise the city, they didn't stay there and make it an outpost. So they may have done so to warn the locals not to mess with their trade routes, or perhaps they were searching for wayward remnants of the Hyksos. But generally, Egypt just wasn't that interested in the area. They wanted it to leave their main interests alone. Therefore, it's no coincidence that Judaism emerged from that area, which was kind of neglected by the imperial forces. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The leading spokes in the Egyptian network were likely Megiddo, Chatzor, and Lachish. We think it's those three for two reasons. First, they have their share of monumental structures, which is usually a sign of political power. In addition, they're also mentioned in Egyptian sources, most notably the Amarna letters. 
our best source for diplomatic affairs at the time. Now, while at first the Egyptian economic interests in Canaan were mostly trade-related, agriculture became increasingly important as their control deepened. The Egyptians used local labor to work farms in the Jezreel Valley, another reason the Jezreel Valley became an important link inside the chain of Egyptian control. A primary base in that area was set up in Bet Sha'an. Not only was it there to keep the area quiet and stable, it also was there to keep food coming. We can see this from a passage in the Amarna letters. Quote, Now the fields were made into arable plots and assigned to inspectors of the palace to reap their harvest. List the harvest his majesty carried off from Megiddo arable plots, 207,300 sacks of wheat, apart from what was cut as forage by his majesty's army. Final use for the networks there was to tax Canaanite cities. Local rulers were expected to levy taxes on their citizens and provide money for Egypt. Rulers were expected to give a harvest tax and a tax quota. And if that wasn't enough, there was also an annual royal gift. Each city was required to pay. Not much of a gift, if you ask me. And if they failed to do so, the military could sometimes get involved. Uncooperative kings were deposed and replaced. The pharaoh could command the locals to start working when the fields needed more labor. For example... The ruler of Rehob, a city situated in the Beth Sha'an Valley, was told to, quote, Command your towns that they should do their work. I am responsible for anyone who stays in the town, end quote. And what did the Pharaoh mean by responsible? Like, nice townsfolk you have there. It would sure be a shame if anything happened to them. And this order is even more autocratic than you may think. The lands of the Jezreel Valley belonged directly to the crown, so the local rulers and their people didn't benefit from them in any way. So, they were basically borrowed slave labor. Indeed, the system became more repressive as time went by. Nadav Ne'eman, an Israeli archaeologist, compared the tributes paid by Canaan city-states to areas controlled by other contemporary powers. He came to believe that the amount of tribute paid by Canaan to the Egyptians was far higher than normal, even in these autocratic times. Here's a quote. Egypt's involvement in Canaan affairs was more profound than the Hittites and the Assyrians' involvement in their vassal states. Canaan under Egyptian rule might be described as halfway between an incorporated province and a vassal state, with a balance between the local rulers with their city-states on the one hand and the Egyptian troops and administration with their garrison cities on the other. This difference in the relationships of the empires with their vassal states should be kept in mind when comparing the burden which they imposed. It also appears that when there were threats to control of the network, the Egyptians encouraged their citizens to move and live in areas of strategic importance. 
They often did this while reinforcing those positions with troops. It was the first, but certainly not the last, use of settlers to cement control over strategic areas in the Levant. As more Egyptians moved into Canaan, soldiers, diplomats, traders, and regular citizens, the interests of the pharaoh there became more complex, and they started to appoint officials in certain cities. The more important, the more important the officials. For example, a position known as Rabisu was in charge of protecting the interests of Egyptian citizens in Canaan. In that sense, it's not too different from what consuls and consul generals do today, but with far more power, since we're talking about colonialism after all. So they had the authority to bring locals to be judged before the king, kind of like an old-school version of extradition. But in other cases, they would administer justice within the city. When a rabisu was given the run of the city, the local rulers were technically subservient to them. The Egyptian name for a client king of this kind was Hazanuti. The main charge of the Hazanuti was to defend their city from outside threats, but equally important, they were expected to gather and pay tribute to the pharaoh, as we have discussed previously. Cities run by Hazanuti were expected to support each other when threatened, a system likely set up to counter the growing threat of the Hittites. But for the Egyptian presence in Canaan, not everything was economic. As always, trade interests mixed with military ones. The pharaohs never saw Canaan as part of their homeland, so they didn't defend it for those purposes, but they did position it as a buffer zone to protect Egypt, especially after the traumas of the Hyksos. So they wished to confront Hittite incursions as far away from the Nile Delta as possible. Now, the Hittites had been around for a while and were the dominant force in Anatolia, that's the mountainous area in Turkey, from 1700 BCE and onwards. However, they didn't begin to expand into the Levant until 1400 or so. Their history mirrors ancient Egypt to some degree, or at least their historians mirror Egyptologists to some degree. Scholars call their period of 1700 to 1500 the Old Kingdom, which was local. Then there was a kind of collapse, leading to a hundred years of darkness, so to speak. But after that came the creation of the, yep, you guessed it, New Kingdom, which began to expand into Syria and Lebanon. They peaked under King Supi Luliuma I, who ruled between 1344 and 1322, and his son Mursili II, who ruled from 1321 to 1295 BCE. So our friend, King Supiliuma I, began establishing himself in the north as the Egyptians moved into the area from the south. When Thutmose III won that famous victory in Megiddo, the kingdoms of the north swore fealty to the pharaoh. Amongst those was the king from a place we know very well from a previous episode, Ugarin. You know, that city where archaeologists found those amazing texts that shed so much light on Canaanite mythology and the roots of Judaism. We covered that back in episodes 17 and 18, if you're curious. When the Hittites came into Syria in the late 14th century BCE, Ugarit maintained its loyalty to the pharaoh. 
but they were soon attacked by anti-Hittite city-states, and Egypt was simply too far to protect them. So the king of Ugarit called on the Hittite sovereign and asked for help. In return, they signed a treaty that required them to pay homage to the Hittites. When the great king with the impossible name to pronounce, Shupiluliuma I, passed away, Pharaoh Horemheb of the 19th dynasty oversaw a local revolt against the Hittites, which they managed to quell. And soon, the new Hittite king, Murshili II, re-established dominance in Syria. This is how Sylvie Lackenbacher described relations between Ugarit and the Hittites. Quote, Hittite power did not grant many liberties to its vassals. The king of Ugarit could neither divorce nor designate his heir without Hittite permission. He was not free to choose his allies, nor to have disposal of his subjects or of foreign refugees in his land. He had to furnish troops, pay tribute, send gifts, exempt Hittite expatriates and diplomats from taxes, respect the established frontiers, live in peace with other vassals, and defer to Hittite arbitration in case of a conflict or an incident involving foreigners. In exchange, though, the Hittite king promised to protect his throne and his kingdom. End quote. However, it appears that Ugarit always maintained a soft spot for their Egyptian exes. Ain't that often the way? For example, when the Hittites suffered a famine, they were forced to import grain from the Egyptians, and generally seemed to be on the verge of collapse. At that time, according to a letter from the Chancellery of Merneptah, the king of Ugarit proclaimed himself the faithful servant of the pharaoh, and wished to install his statue in the temple of Baal, who was, as we know, the national god. At the time of the highest level of tension with the Hittites, the ports on the coast were used to support operations against them in both Lebanon and Syria when necessary. Meanwhile, the roads leading inland could help support allied cities in conflict with the invaders. Therefore, the garrisons were concentrated primarily on the Mediterranean coast. Thutmose III probably set them up, and there were four major ones, Gaza, Jaffa, Ulasa, and Sumur in the north. Later on, these linked to the major base we discussed in Bitsha'an. Because of the sensitivity of these spots, local kings were not deemed trustworthy enough to manage them, so they were deposed and replaced by Egyptian officials in cooperation with the local urban institutions. That is something that colonial powers would do for the next 3,500 years, co-opting local elites to ensure their stability, especially in areas of high strategic significance. The policy towards northern cities was a bit different from the south, probably due to a combination of the Hittite threat and the inability to control them as firmly as the cities in the south. So often, they didn't have to pay any tribute to Egypt, while the cities in the south had to pay a lot of tribute, some of it probably to make up for the northern cities that um, did not do so. The Hittites were far from being the only security threat that the Egyptians faced at this time in Canaan. One persistent problem the Egyptians encountered were those pesky nomads, the Shasu. 
These were tribes of nomads who dwelt away from trade routes, but raided them when the chance presented itself. They're the forefathers, at least in terms of lifestyle, of the modern Bedouin, who still live in the region today. The pharaoh, Amenhotep, discussed the problem in the following inscription, which read, quote, I have put a company of soldiers at the head of the road to repulse the foreigners upon their places which surround Egypt. By keeping an eye on the movement of the Bedouin, I have done likewise at the head of the bank at the river mouth, surrounded by my troops, quite apart from the crews of loyal sailors. End quote. We'll discuss the Shasu further as we delve into the Amarna letters in the next few episodes. They played an important role in the diplomacy of the time. And what about the Canaanites in the meantime? We don't know as much as we would like to about Canaanite resistance to Egyptian imperialism, but the Battle of Megiddo and the destruction of some cities indicate it was fierce. The story of the capture of Joppa, which we discussed in the previous episode, is another sign of that. Therefore, the Egyptians likely had to put much effort into pacifying this land, at least in the first 50 years or so of occupation. But what about the regular people at that time? Some of the best evidence we have of that comes from the city of Jaffa, or what we today call Jaffa. That town has been continuously occupied since the Middle Bronze Age up until today. As a natural and central port, people have always been happy to make their homes there. So by the time the Egyptians arrived, it had been a long-standing Canaanite city. Archaeologists are lucky that when Tel Aviv grew into what it is today, Jews tended to avoid living in Jaffa, which was majority Arab. Therefore, there was less development in the area than in the adjacent city. And archaeologists had an unspoiled and easy access to some important areas. In the first dig in the area in 1956, Israeli archaeologists found a gate facade with the inscription of Ramses II. If you go there today, you can see a recreation of the original gate for the benefit of tourists and visitors. Other finds there include the Lion Temple, so named because of the skull of a literal lion found there. Not a statue, a legit lion skull. The sheer amount of Egyptian artifacts found in Jaffa points to imperial forces that were in permanent occupation of the city. Archaeologists have found ceramics spanning the entire period from 1460 BCE to 1150. Therefore, it appears that the claims Thutmose III made of conquering Jaffa, as discussed in the previous episode, were accurate, and they had long-term effects on the city. It may have even been the most important base they had on the coast, which was the most important area of their colonial holdings in Canaan overall. And we can also learn a little bit about the culture in Jaffa. All the ceramics we find are Egyptian in style. At first they were imported from Egypt, but as time went by, they began to be locally crafted. There's at least two examples of locals preparing them in their kitchens that have been identified. We can also get a sense of the local economy from these ceramics. For example, a type of pot that archaeologists call a flower pot, 
which was not used for flowers. It was actually used to make bread and beer. Both of those were produced in large amounts in Jaffa. The largest concentration of these artifacts was found near the location of the monumental gateway of Ramses II that we just mentioned. So it most likely served the Egyptian garrison in the city, which was located near the city's eastern gate, where it would have been easy to deploy. And that would also explain the need for a ton of beer and bread. Soldiers need those two things. The city was important as a military base on the coastline and an important port for trade. And the fact that it appeared in a story, the capture of Joppa story from last episode, indicates that it may have been quite important. All the indications are that it was quite important. The pharaohs seem to pay special attention to Jaffa as well. There's three scarabs there from the era of Amunhotep III. One of them commemorates a royal lion hunt, kind of similar to Victorian royalist memorabilia. But unlike in those days, royal scarabs were given as a sign of high favor to critical officials. Common people didn't have these kind of things. That meant it was very important to the pharaohs to keep the colonial administration in the city happy, underscoring its strategic and economic importance. Now, for years, archaeologists talked about an Egyptianizing of artifacts produced by the Canaanites. In other words, the assumption was that over time, Canaanite culture kind of faded and was replaced by Egyptian culture. A bit like the way people talk about how um, the Jews were Hellenized at a certain point. But the findings in Jaffa and other vital cities don't bear that out. Where Egyptian imperial interests were paramount, the artifacts there were completely Egyptianized. So that's on the coast and the lowlands. We don't know who was producing these goods. May have been Canaanites, may have been Egyptians coming from Egypt, may have been a combination of the two. But either way, whoever was producing them was doing them under the supervision of Egyptians. So Egyptians were telling them what to produce. So it's not surprising that they were producing um, Egyptian artifacts. But when archaeologists dug into cities that weren't under direct imperial control, they found the Canaanites continued to do the Canaanite thing, make their own kind of artifacts, similar artifacts to what they produced before the Egyptians took over their country, and sometimes more advanced. They were just doing their own thing. So archaeologist Aaron Burke wrote the following, quote, Terms such as Egyptianizing and Egyptianized should be abandoned in favor of the straightforward identification of Egyptian ceramic forms as either locally produced, imported, or imitated, as is largely done with Cypriot and Mycenaean forms that also occur in the Late Bronze Age assemblings of Canaan. Jaffa's population during the Late Bronze Age was undoubtedly cosmopolitan, as might be expected for a major Egyptian fortress frequented by ships bearing emissaries from lands ringing the eastern Mediterranean and housing a Canaanite population who likely provided for many of the basic needs of the Egyptian garrison, end quote. So what we see here is that Canaanite culture and traditions were far stronger than initially believed, and the Egyptian occupation did not wipe them out or even influence them anywhere near as much as previously believed. But let's not let the fact 
that the Canaanites held on to their culture obscure the fact that they were militarily and politically utterly dominated by Egypt. All the evidence shows that there was little military activity in Canaan. By the time we get to the rule of Amun-Hotep, 1386-1349, and certainly by the time we get to Akhenaten, 1353-1336. And we see that in two mutually reinforcing ways. First, booty from conquest is no longer listed among the achievements of these pharaohs. Meanwhile, their predecessors were very proud of all the loot they had captured from their subjugated enemies. Second, there's no evidence of the destruction of cities and areas controlled by the Egyptians. So, what we see is that the Canaanites had basically surrendered and accepted their fate. Instead of that, we start to see gifts arriving in Egypt from Canaanite leaders. A sure sign that they had given up and pro-Egyptian leaders had been installed. And again, the Amarna archives gives us some idea of what this looked like. Here are just some examples recorded there. It says the Canaanites provided 5,000 shekels from Jerusalem, 14,000 shekels from southern Canaan. Mikilu of Gezer was requested to pay 2,000 shekels. The ruler of Amiya was ordered to send 20 shekels as part of the dowry of his daughter. But it wasn't all gold, folks. Rulers sent copper. Sometimes they even sent raw glass. Meanwhile, Aziru of Amuru sent eight ships loaded with wood. However, the most expensive and meaningful gifts appear to have been chariots and horses. Chariots at this time were the latest military technology, kind of like drones today or something. And a regrettable reality of that period, and most periods in history, was the slave trade. Human beings of lower social status were often treated with little humanity, and enslaved people were treated with none. Therefore, we often see them on the lists of gifts provided by local rulers to the pharaohs. These are some of the examples in the Amarna letters. Quote, Ashtarti of South Canaan sent ten maids of an unknown description. Milkilu of Gezer sent 46 maidservants and 10 young slaves. Abdi Heba of Jerusalem sent Asiru, that's most likely the warriors or bodyguards, and eight caravan escorts. End quote. On another occasion, the king of Jerusalem sent 21 maidservants, 10 slaves, and 80 Asiru. Meanwhile, Shubandu of southern Canaan sent 20 girls. By the way, in case you're curious, the market price of a maidservant in Canaan around the Amarna letters time was 40 shekels, which apparently is about the same as in Egypt and Syria at the time. We know this because the pharaoh sent his representatives to purchase maidservants for him at full price. That suggests two things. First, there was an orderly market in Canaan at the time, and slaves were not taken by force as they are in times of war. Another sign of peace. Second, even the freaking pharaoh couldn't get a discount when it came to slaves. That was a serious commodity. So now we've set the stage. We see how Canaan became an Egyptian colony. We see how the Hittites threatened from the north. In the next episode, we will delve into the Amarna letters 
and examine relations between Egypt and Canaan at this time, as reflected through the eyes of real people who lived 3,300 years ago. It will be lit. And with that, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I don't ask you to support this podcast in any monetary way, but the one thing you can do to help is give us five-star reviews. That helps with our exposure. You can also send me an email at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And see you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast next week.